Our scripture today is from James 1, verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now I know that you will agree with me, and as we've been talking that we are right at this time living within some of the strangest set of events and circumstances that any of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. And probably as strange as most anyone has experienced in certainly any recent generation. And as students of these scriptures, we'd have to admit that the events and the circumstances that are taking place right now they are eerily similar to what we imagine are being described in these scriptures as being the end times, the end times, the last days of this earth. And as I scan across the Christian broadcast network, I find that many of our Christian brethren, especially those who hold to the dispensational doctrines of scripture, they are indeed preaching and preaching strongly that these current events have so many of the markings that are given in the prophetic scripture about the last days. Some of you may not be as familiar with the current wave of preaching and teaching about those prophecies, and that's because most often it seems that we within the Reformed faith, especially we Presbyterians, we tend to shy away from those kinds of programming, choosing instead to believe that most of the book of Revelation and and other similar scriptures that uh, deal with the end times, they're meant more to be metaphorical in nature rather than literal. But may I say again, as we listen to many of the sermons being preached, we find that there are many of our brethren, solid Christian brethren in our evangelical community who believe very differently about these scriptures. They hold that most of the revelations of these scriptures that speak about the end times, that they are literal, literal in their interpretation, and that all the events that are taking place during these very days that we're in right now are evidence. They are evidence that our days ahead are drawing nearer to a close. And I must confess to you that though I am very reformed in most all my beliefs, I actually have a strong dispensational strain that's uh, flowing through my own veins. And I do believe the end time prophecies mentioned in these scriptures are to be interpreted in a much more literal manner than most of my Reformed friends are inclined to do. And many of our evangelical brethren are questioning right now, if all that's taking place is, is this God's judgment? that he is visiting upon our wicked behavior. And some of them very passionately believing that it is God's judgment, that all that's taking place right now, the, from 9-11 to the virus to all of this, rioting in the streets, that it is God's judgment on our sin. Now, my own conclusion about those questions are mixed, uh, both yes and no. But regardless of our private opinion, the fact is, we have some very important signs right in front of us daily. 
both within these scriptures and also in, in all these prevailing events throughout our world. And the question is, the question for us is, what are you and I supposed to do with this information that we have right in front of us? What are we supposed to do with these scriptures that clearly speak about a coming end of days? And what are we supposed to do with all of the signs that are taking place out there in our society that speak these words of the end of days? And they're right in front of our eyes. What are we supposed to do with that information? Now, as to the question about whether these events that are taking place today signal the very last days of the earth, Jesus told us, as you'll remember, told us plainly that we are not ever going to be able to know the exact day or the hour. And also, these scriptures seem to imply that we have somewhat of a forewarning. A forewarning. We can note there's some prophetic scriptures given in Mark chapter 13 from those descriptions about these ominous events. And there he speaks about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and plagues of many kinds. But he says there in Mark chapter 13 that when you see those events taking place, the end is not yet come, but is only the beginning of the birth pains. So for us today, as we observe all that's taking place, all these signs, we can assume that the final end of days has not yet fully arrived, that these sufferings are more likely to be birth pains. However, with all that being said, it's also well for us to realize that when birth pains are present, those birth pains are a definite signal that a birth is surely very close and that we had better get busy making our last-minute preparation. Which then brings us to the whole impetus behind why God's hand truly is always involved in all of these events that are taking place every moment of every day, and why He will eventually call our days to a close. And folks, it's the same reason. It's the same reason He nearly destroyed the earth the first time with the flood. The reason is sin. Just before God brought on the flood, we read in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of men were only evil continually. And folks, listen, right now, right at this moment, wickedness truly is great upon the earth. It looks so very much like the days of Noah and also very much like the circumstances warned about in 2 Timothy 3. And I'd like you to turn there in your Bible, if you would. I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. And I want to read this, but I also want you to mark it, and I want you to think about these words as you see all that's taking place in our land. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Wow! 
What a litany of wickedness. And he says, that's going to take place in these last days. And I have to ask you, do not these words perfectly describe our current culture and this, the prevailing sins of the people today. Listen again. See if you can find not only other people, but perhaps some of yourself in some of these. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, so self-centered, proud, arrogant. Oh, all you have to do is turn on any of the major news networks and they blast this out at us. Proud, arrogant, abusive. And then as to children, and we're talking about all ages of children, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. How much slander goes across not only the networks, but unfortunately our own lips. You know, God tells us, and I didn't do this today, but God tells us to pray for people like Nancy Pelosi. Now, I don't know what you think about her, but the the problem is I have a slanderous thought when I see people like that and what they're saying and what they're doing. And it's not just because of my politics. It's because of what they're saying and what they're doing. And I don't want to be slanderous in my thoughts. I don't want to, but they come up. Uh, The Lord says it begins as just a thought, a lustful thought. Now, those lustful thoughts are, they form in many different ways, but it becomes, it's a thought in the back of your mind. And then it stays there and it festers and it works then slowly, it works its way out into sin. That's what happens when you and I watch the news, at least. It's what happens when I watch the news. Brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Isn't that so much like what the culture is like today? And remember also that Jesus said that the final end times will be as in the days of Noah. He used that example specifically. As in the days of Noah, the people in Noah's day were simply going about their day. They were all caught up in their wicked ways and they were ignoring his preaching and his warnings. And then suddenly their end came and they perished. Folks, without question, wickedness is now also great upon this earth, just as it was in the days of Noah. And the question so many people are asking is, are we now in those end times that Jesus warned about? And again, we really can't know for sure, and we can't do much about what is going on out there. You and I can't do much about this virus. You and I can't do much about the rioting in the streets. But in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter gives us the best guidance as to what you and I ought to be doing right now. What are we going to do with the information that's in front of us? He, he tells us, and he's talking about the last days. Listen to this. This is 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10. He says there that the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then he says, listen, listen to this. Verse 11 of 2 Peter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question that is asked of us. What kind of people ought you and me to be? And he answers it. And he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now, folks, this, this is exactly what you and I are to be about doing right now while we still can. Again, we can't do much about what's taking place in our society. We pray, yes, but you and I can't go out there and affect so much of that. 
What we can do, though, is what he's saying here. While we still can, we need to be living holy and godly lives. And we need to get about dealing with the sin that is rampant within our own personal souls. And as much as we're able to, we need to minister the gospel to anyone who will listen, especially our beloved families and friends. And that's what God is presenting to us here. And he's warning us about there in James chapter 1. Here, he's telling us that we must be ever so careful, ever so careful to guard our hearts and our minds against the wiles of sin and its consequences. That those sin may begin as only a subtle desire in the back of our mind. Left unattended. Folks, listen. Left unattended. Left unrepented. It can quickly and easily work its way out into full-blown, rampant wickedness, just as in the days of Noah. An example of that, my sweet wife and I warn each other about. It only takes a moment for us to be talking about something that's taking place, and suddenly we're on a rant. Do you all get on a rant? And so we say to each other, wait, let's not do that. It can work its way out. It just starts as a one little thought, and then it works its way out into sin. Because, let me say to you, when I rant, I'm sinning, and that's wrong. Now, may I back up for a moment and simply restate the obvious, and that is that sin and the manner in which you and I deal with sin, that can be this great dividing line in our personal relationship with Christ. And it can be the the determinant of whether we'll suffer the wrath of God and the everlasting punishment of hell that's described in these scriptures, or instead we'll spend our eternity in heaven with Christ. Now on these matters, folks, these scriptures are so clear, they are not up for private interpretation. Each of us will surely stand before God on that great and terrible day of judgment. You know, there's a lot of preachers out there that say, when we die, we're just going to go straight on into heaven. Scripture says that we will stand in judgment. It's very clear. We will stand in judgment. Now, I do have Christ as my Savior, so I get to go to heaven, and I know that. But there's still a judgment. There's still a judgment. And with sin being the central issue of concern, you and I really ought to make every effort to know as much as we can about how sin can so easily, so subtly inject itself into the matters of our own personal daily lives. Else, listen, while we're still stumbling around in the darkness of foolish ignorance, sin, sin with its subtle but overwhelming power will seize the opportunity. It's clever. It'll seize the opportunity and it'll overcome our souls. Remember the counsel that God gave to Cain when Cain was getting ready to go out and do the evil of killing Abel. God said to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. And that warning is to you and me. That warning is to you and me. So may I say again, sin truly is a subtle but devastatingly powerful enemy. And it's ever desiring to take absolute control over our souls. And if we aren't prepared to realize the totality of that threat and the reality and the urgency of that threat, and if we don't deal with it, then we will surely be caught unawares and we'll suffer, perhaps even perish in our ignorance. Because remember, even in our ignorance, even in our ignorance, we are still always without excuse. Scripture is clear on that. And we are fully accountable for our sin. Now there's another truth about sin that you and I have to always keep in mind. And that is that sin is not something 
that you and I acquire along the way that we happen to suddenly stumble into and suddenly we're sinners. No, no, that's not what took place. You and I do have, yes, those daily episodes of sin that we stumble into. But listen, the basic condition of sin, Scripture is so clear, the basic condition of sin is part of our nature. It came with us at birth. It was born into every fiber of our being, and it was interlaced into our DNA. And that's why we have the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. You and I are totally depraved from the moment that we breathe our first breath. And that depravity within us is ever desiring to have total control over us. And if you ever doubt or want to deny that you or someone else has that depraved nature, let me read some verses for you. Romans chapter 3. This is you and me. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's scripture, folks. That's true. So question, why is God so decisive in his words to us here? It's because he wants you and me to have no confusion at all about our condition and about sin's desire to control us. Now, thankfully, thankfully, in uh, verses, just a, a few verses later there in Romans chapter 3, God does give us the answer and the remedy for our dilemma of sin. And that answer, that remedy and dilemma is Christ's atonement and his justification. But first, but first, by giving us these verses and others like them, God wants you and me to be fully aware and fully accepting of the totality of the wretched state of our soul the totality of the wretchedness of our soul. And until that realization takes place within us, folks, the remedy that God offers to us here for our sin, repentance, it will not begin. It cannot begin. Justification will never take place until we fully accept God's truth about the condition of our souls, that we are wretched sinners in need of a Savior, individually. And yes, it is so much easier to look out into the society and recognize this the rampant, sinful and wicked ways of unbelievers. But listen, God is saying to us here that we need to understand that sin can also very quickly become rampant within the souls of us believers, you and me. And sadly, too often it does. And listen, because that's true, God instructs each of us in these scriptures to always be diligent to go back and check our own hearts. Read 2 Corinthians 13, 5 if you doubt that. I have a friend, Bennett, he was a Christian most all of his life, he said he received Christ at seven years old. And um, he said, you shouldn't always go back and ask yourself whether or not you're saved. God doesn't say that. Second Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? God says, go back and check. Go back and check. So then, what are those words saying to us? It's this, that even though you and I might truly be saved, struggles like those that are experiencing, please read Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul at the height of his own walk with Christ is crying out to God. He said, why do I keep doing the things that I shouldn't do? I know what I should be doing right, but I don't do them. 
Those same kind of struggles will rise up within you and me, confusing us as it did with the Apostle Paul, perhaps, discouraging us as it seemed to be doing with him, even plaguing us continually most of our lives. What's taking place within our souls as we experience our own episodes of sinful behavior? And the question is, what is God's role during it all? What is he doing during these times of that sin rises up in our lives? Let me read these words again for us. James chapter 1, 13, verse 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, as we consider these truths, we know that sin and sinful desires, they do manifest themselves differently within each of us. Some of us have desires and lusts for money, some towards sex, some towards power, position. But listen, the effects, the effects of all of those sins, they end up being very similar. And left unattended, each of those sins can lead us down a step-by-step decline into reprobation. And there again, I mentioned a moment ago, God describes those, those steps of reprobation as we decline uh, into reprobation in, in Romans chapter 1. There God tells us that if we don't resist our inclinations towards our various sinful desires, then He will go ahead and give us over to the next sin. That doesn't sound like God, does it? But there in Romans chapter 1, He says, if you want to do those things, I'm going to give you over to them. I'm going to give you over to that one, and then I'm going to give you over to the next one and to the next one, even until you're completely reprobate. And folks, those are sobering words. And they really do sound like God's talking about unbelievers. But he's talking to us too. You and I can take some of those same paths, even if we're truly saved. And God's part in this matter of temptation given to us here tells us that God is not passive. He is a sovereign Lord. And he is always involved in the whole process of us dealing with sin. And he'll take a very active role in what's taking place in us with his providential hand. And let me say without equivocation, God will never cross the line into himself tempting us in any manner of sin. He leads and he guides, but in all of his ordaining and all of his leading and all of his guiding, God himself never is the actual causer of our sin. He is never the actual tempter of anyone. It's just as he says here in these words, let no one say, when he is tempted, that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now the clear example being given here is that if we want to walk a sinful and evil path, now what I'm talking about is this. You and I are caught up in a situation where our culture is in some of the worst mess it's been in, in in our history. And the question is, what are we supposed to be doing with all that's in front of us? God is saying to us, listen, if you want to choose a path and walk it, one of sinfulness and evil, he's saying to us, I'll allow you to do that. I'll allow you to do that. And not only that, if you decide you want to do it, I'll actually give you over to it. As much as we don't want to think that of God, he says that, that he will do that. And so you and I need to be very careful in how we respond to what's taking place today. 
one of my favorite Bible commentators is R.C. Sproul, and he envisions this process as, as being that as we give ourselves over to sinful desires and lusts, that God will simply widen out what was once protective hedges. Remember in the book of Job, he talks about these, these hedges of protection that are around us. And what R.C. Sproul, the commentator, envisions is that when you and I decide, when we make a choice and we want to go ahead and take a next step into some sinful desire or lust, that he'll simply widen out his protective hedges and he'll allow us, our old sinful nature, to rise up within us and do whatever it wants to do. And as we take those steps, it's not God who's tempting us. We need to understand that. It is not God who's tempting us. It is us simply doing what we already have a sinful desire to do. And so we can't blame God for it. And that's the essence of what he says here in verse 14 of James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So then, the answer to the question about whether God is bringing judgment upon our sins through the events that are taking place right now in our own lives and in all out in our society with the virus and all. The answer is really yes and no. Yes and no. Mostly it seems that we can assume that we're simply suffering the God-ordained consequences for our own simple behaviors because he's allowing us to go ahead and do those things. As he widens out his protective hedges, he allows consequences to have their way. And then sadly, as our world becomes more and more depraved, God will continue to widen out his protective hedges and will more and more give us over to the next step and the next step of reprobation. And he'll keep doing that until he calls everything to a close. Now, as to whether these days that we're living in are the very last days, I'd like to close with these words from 2 Peter 3. I read some of these words a moment ago. But listen, 2 Peter 3, beginning of verse 8. He says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. By the way, that's why God is keeping this earth going another day, another day, and why He hasn't called it all to a close. It says He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Then he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of person should you and I be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speeding its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, with God. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is the answer. We can't stop the riots. 
We can't stop the virus. We can't make our politicians and our news media and our other world leaders do things rightly. We can't get them to do anything we want them to do. And that's probably good because we probably don't have good answers ourselves. But we know what we have to do. We have to surrender our lives to you and live holy and blameless and godly lives. And so we pray for each one of us that we would do that, that we would give our hearts to you fully and you be Lord of our lives. We pray in Jesus' precious name.